Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you unsure about the type of dovetails to use on casework? Do you want to know if you can chop a mortise across the grain of a board? Do you have questions about the usefulness of smaller bench planes? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 50 of the show for May 29th, 2019. Before I start today's show, I want to take a minute to thank all our patrons for your continued support. And thanks to two new patrons this week, Steve Avery and Ross Goodley, for signing up to support the show. Listener support helps to keep the show going, so if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. If you're already a patron, again, I thank you, and be sure to head over to the patron post page to submit your questions and requests for the next patron Q&A video. So we are going to get right into the show today, um, and we actually got some, some feedback. Damien had some feedback on flattening the workbench, uh, which was a question from episode 48. So let's listen to what Damien has to say. Hey, Bob. Damien here from Hudson Valley, New York. Um, I just had a recommendation for the gentleman who was calling about resurfacing his workbench in episode 48. I had an idea that perhaps he hadn't thought of, and it's simply this. If he's getting tear out on the top, and he's able to sharpen better, and close the mouth of his plane really, really tight, and move the chip breaker really close to the edge of the blade, and minimize that tear out, he should ask himself, is it really that important to have a perfectly smooth surface as long as it's flat? I know a lot of people like to have really glass smooth surfaces and their workbenches are a point of pride, but I look at it as another tool and to me it really doesn't matter what my bench looks like. If he's one of those people, then maybe the little tear out is not the worst thing in the world. Maybe he could live with it. Anyway, that's just a suggestion. Thanks a lot. Keep up what you're doing and uh, stay sharp. Thanks. So thank you, Damien. Um, I agree 100%. And... Uh, and I do think uh, it's something that I just uh, overlooked and, and didn't mention in the response. But I, I absolutely agree with you that uh, that it's more important that the bench be flat enough to do good work um, as opposed to completely tear out free. Because as you mentioned, it it is really a tool um, and, and, you know, the perfect tear out free surface really isn't going to impact anything as much as uh, being out of flat to the point that it's affecting the uh, the work. So thank you for that feedback. So our first question for today comes from Elmer. And Elmer wants to know about casework on uh, period furniture, dovetails for casework on period furniture. He says, looking at casework of original examples, often I will notice half-blind dovetails rather than through dovetails, even on pieces where the dovetail isn't even seen. For example, in the piece in the photo, the top half the, the top has half-blind dovetails even though the side of the case is covered with a molding. The only thing I could think of 
is that the half-blind dovetails leave a clean, smooth surface without any end grain exposed, providing a more reliable glue surface for the molding. For me, it takes a lot longer to make half-blind than through dovetails, so he's wondering you know, why that would be done. Um, so Elmer sent a, a, a photo, and um, to, to me, the picture that he sent looks like a, a modern reproduction, does not look like an original piece. So I can't say for sure if the orientation of the dovetails on this particular piece is true to the original or not. Um, I'm going to give whoever made the piece the benefit of the doubt and say that the dovetails are true to the original. However, um, I haven't seen a lot of case pieces with dovetails in this particular orientation, and, and I'll explain what I'm talking about. So, as Elmer mentions, it's, it's a case piece. Um, I, from the picture, this one looks to be like it could be a, a jewelry chest or a lingerie chest. It looks like a scaled down version of a high boy. Um, you know, that would be scaled down to make a jewelry chest or a lingerie chest or something like that. It's a small version of a high boy. Uh, I can see some trifid feet maybe in the picture. Um, but we're looking at the picture from the top down. So you're looking at the top of the case. Uh, could be, you know, like a chest of drawers even. Uh, you know, looking, staring directly down at the top. And the top board of the case is connected to the sides of the case with half-blind dovetails. And then the top of the case um, is, you know, is wrapped in a, in a cornice molding. So looking down at the top of the case, you can see the half-blind tails. And looking at the sides of the case, it just looks like solid wood. You know, you don't see the joinery. Um... Again, I'm going to give the whoever built this reproduction the benefit of the doubt that it's original, but it's not something that I've seen a lot of um, with dovetails in that in, in, in that orientation on a period piece. Um, period furniture makers were typically interested in getting the piece done to the best of their ability, the highest quality possible, but also as quickly as possible. Um, and as you've mentioned, as Elmer mentions, half-blind dovetails take a lot longer to cut than a through dovetail. Um, now, I have seen case pieces, and I've built case pieces myself, where the case sides were joined to the top with half-blind dovetails, but the orientation was reversed. So in other words, the half-blind tails were on the case sides, and the top had the half-blind pins, so that once the molding was applied, the dovetails were hidden, and when you looked at the piece from the top, you couldn't tell that there was any um, any joinery at all in, at that corner. And to me, that seems to be a more common arrangement of the dovetails, because the purpose of using a half-blind dovetail on that corner where the top meets the sides would be to hide the dovetails because most people didn't want to see the dovetails during that period. Um, you know, showing the joinery um, was kind of a faux pas. You know, you didn't really want to see the joinery. The idea and the goal in building a lot of these pieces was to hide the joinery. So they were designed in such a way that the dovetails would be covered up with moldings or inside of a case, you know, if it's a drawer or something like that. 
So in most cases that I've seen, the half-blind tails were on the sides and the half-blind pins were on the top. That way, when, once you put the molding on, you didn't see the dovetails at all. Um, but in the orientation of the piece that, that Elmer provided the picture of with the half-blind tails on the top, the tails are um, distinctly visible. And I can think of um, really only one reason for doing that. Um, in some cases, when, when wood shrinks, the pins could become slightly proud or, or the tails could be some, depending on, on the movement, the, the pins could be slightly proud um, if the sideboard shrinks in thickness uh, because the pin board is not going to shrink in length. Um, and if the pins, if the pins become slightly proud because of the sides shrink in thickness, that could push the molding away from the side of the case and create a gap. Um, usually you wouldn't glue the molding except maybe at the front few inches. You wouldn't glue the entirety of the molding. It would just be nailed on because it's a cross grain situation. Um, and in period cases, usually the molding was just nailed on. Um, but if the sides shrunk and the pins became proud, those proud pins could then push the molding away from the sides of the case and create a gap. Um, similarly, if you ran into a situation where the sides swelled in thickness, um, you know you could you could then push that molding away. Um, I don't think that would be too much of an issue. I don't think that would be the issue really you'd be dealing with. It would be more shrinkage of the case sides and the uh, and the pins because of that shrinkage shrinkage becoming proud of the case side and pushing the molding away. That's really the only reason I could see for doing a half blind dovetail on a case piece corner in that orientation with the half blind tails on the top so that they would be visible in the, in the finished piece. The only other reason I can think of would be that the joinery was not originally done that way in the original piece and the the maker, whoever did the reproduction, just wanted to see dovetails in the case. Um, so th that's another possibility as well, um, is that the maker just wanted to see the dovetails um, and they wanted to make sure that the molding didn't get pushed away from the side of the case. So rather than using through dovetails, they used half blind dovetails. Um, but again, if, you know, if I were, if we're going to give the, the maker the benefit of the doubt and say that this is an accurate reproduction and that the original had half blind, uh, half blind tails on the top and then the half blind pin board were the sideboards. Um, I would say that it would, it was because, uh, you didn't want the, the pins to push the molding away from the case as the case sides shrank that would be my only explanation for for making the case in that way so our second question comes from ted ted says i'm attempting to make a frame saw for resawing the example is in a book by tom fidgen the stretchers meet the cross pieces in a mortise and tenon joint the stretchers resist the tension that keeps the blade tight I ran into trouble from the fact that the long dimension of the mortise runs across the grain rather than parallel to it I found that chopping is commonly done with mortise with a mortise breaks the edge of the mortise away in the direction of the grain. Perhaps you could comment or suggest precautions that would keep help keep my expensive piece of oak looking better. 
So, um, yeah, mortises across the grain of a board. So I, I know the saw that you're talking about, um, and I, I, I understand the frustration. Um, I think the issue is that, that a mortise across the grain is not a real traditional joint, at least not one that would have traditionally been made by hand. If we look back at most period pieces, um, we don't see mortises too often in that orientation where they're going across the grain of a board, you know, where the long dimension of the mortise is going across the grain of the board. That's not a very typical orientation for that joint. So it would come as no surprise that it's not very easy to chop a mortise in that kind of orientation. We do start to see joints like that in later pieces. When we start to see arts and crafts furniture, for example, we do start to see mortises that will go across the grain of the board. Um, you know, a through mortise with a tusk tenon tends to get kind of popular um, during that arts and crafts period, where we do see, you know, in those types of pieces, mortises that run across the grain of the board. But by the time those pieces were being made, um, mortises were being made by machines. So um, it's no surprise that you know, it was a little bit easier for them to get away with making them, uh, making mortises in that orientation. And it's, it's, it's a joint, the joint is plenty strong enough. Uh, it's really not so much an issue of joint strength. It's just a, an issue that it, it's not so easy to make that joint by chopping the mortise. So the solution really is to bore the waste out first and then clean it up with a chisel. Um, how I would make a, a mortise across the grain for something like the saw that you're talking about or, or an art, a piece of arts and crafts furniture would be to take a bracing bit and uh, you know lay out the extents of that mortise with a knife so that you're going to get a good, good, clean mortise wall um, because, again, the, the majority of that mortise length is going to be across the grain um, of the board. So you are going to want to knife those uh, those mortise walls really well. Um, and then I would maybe pare away a little bit of that material between the knife, uh, the knife lines just to give the bit a place to sit in and register against. And then I would bore out the majority of that waste uh, with a bracing bit and then clean it up with a chisel. I think you're going to find that uh, boring the mortise out first and then paring the... Um, pairing the walls clean is going to give you a much better result with a mortise that goes across the grain than, than trying to chop it. So uh, give that a try and see if your results don't improve. So our next question comes from Jeremy. Jeremy says, because you cover the value of the smaller bench planes. I have a block plane and then jump to a four, five, seven, and eight. I can't think of a time I've ever been left in a lurch by not having a smaller plane. Am I missing something? Is there a task that is easier with one of these than I am doing the hard way? So, um, by smaller plane, I'm guessing you mean like the number one, two, and three size bench planes. Um, you know, if we look at older planes, uh, smoothers tended to be a little bit smaller in the 18th century. Um, I would say, you know, looking at, at some of the old books, it's, it's difficult to tell from surviving examples because there aren't that many 18th century planes that survive. There are, um, you know, there are examples, 
Um, but most of the planes that we see that survive today are later 19th century planes. So um, some of the stuff from the, you know, the early 18th, early to mid 18th century, they just don't survive um, all that much. But there are some out there. And we do find that that older 18th century smoothers tended to be a little bit smaller, maybe in the seven to eight inch range, um, as opposed to what we see in later wooden planes that tend to be closer to the, you know, closer to the eight inch inch range, um, whereas the earlier planes were closer to the seven inch range. But what does that really mean? Are they more useful because of that? Um, you know, honestly, I've used small wooden smoothers. I've used bigger wooden smoothers. Um, you know, I had a wooden smoother that was about, um, it was probably a good eight, eight and a quarter inches, maybe even a little bit longer than that. And it had a big old, you know, two and a quarter inch wide iron, which is a wide iron for a, a, a smoothing plane. It's, you know, probably about the size in terms of width uh, of, I guess it would be like a Stanley four and a half. Um, it's a big wide iron and, uh, you know, what I found using those planes was that the real benefit of the smaller smoothing plane was that it fit better in your hand. Um, there is a, a theory that smaller smoothers get into small, you know, into dips in the board a little bit better. And, th and there's truth to that. I don't want to, you know, I shouldn't call it a theory. There is some truth to that. So the smaller a plane is, the smaller the sole is, and the, and the narrower the iron is, the easier that plane is going to get into small dips and hollows in the face of a board. So let's say, for example, you've got a tabletop. And that tabletop needs to be nice and smooth. However, it doesn't need to be 100% perfectly flat. It just needs to look flat. Well, that small smoother is going to get into the little hollows um, and dips in the surface of that board a lot easier than say a you know a big old like four and a half or a jack plane or something like that, which is going to have a tendency because of the longer and wider sole to ride over the low spots and play in the high spots until that board or tabletop becomes flatter. Um, so there there's certainly some merit in the small smoothing planes for those reasons. Um, however, I think you have to question how much difference there would be between, say, you know, a Stanley number three and a Stanley number four in terms of, you know, how much does that really make a difference? You know, is a, is a number three really going to get into um, a spot that a number four doesn't? And if the number three does and the number four doesn't, how many additional shavings would you have to take until the number four smoothed that area, right? Um, so I don't know that it's, I don't know that the importance is that big. You know, I, I've over, I've, I've stated it myself and maybe I've overstated the, you know, how much benefit there is in the smaller smoothing planes. Um, but in my experience, the, the real benefit to the small planes to me has been, especially in the wooden smoother, that they fit your hand better than the bigger ones. My big smoother um, really, really filled your hand and it could be kind of a pain in the butt to use for long periods of time because it didn't fit your hand real well. And because it was a coffin smoother, it didn't have a handle. As soon as you put a tote or handle on a plane, the size of that body of that plane can get bigger and still be just as comfortable. 
um, as a smaller plane. Um, so I, I really think that the, a larger smoother became more popular as we start to move into the metal planes because you had a handle, you had a tote. Um, and it, a tote makes a longer, wider plane more comfortable to hold. Whereas with the coffin smoothers, the wooden coffin smoothers, the longer and the wider that plane gets, the less comfortable it gets to hold in your hand. Um, the benefit of the longer or, or the wider smoothers um, is that they can smooth an area a lot faster with fewer plane strokes because they can cover more. So a lot of people prefer like a 10 and a half because, um, you know, like for a tabletop or something like that, they can smooth it a lot faster because it's a wider iron. Um, if you look at the Stanley planes, just look on eBay and see, you know, what are the most popular ones sold? And you're going to find, and, and, you know, very, I'm very confident in saying this, you're going to find that the number four smoothing plane was the absolute most popular plane size sold because it was likely... Uh, the most useful in terms of smoothing and in terms of um, job site work, you know, jack planes and number fours, uh, number fives and number fours are the two most popular, two most common uh, sold or available sizes of plane on eBay. And the reason for that is because they were just good sizes for the work that they do. Um, so I, you know, I think a number four size metal bench plane is a good overall general size smoother. If your hands are a little bit smaller or if you tend to do generally smaller work, maybe smaller tables, boxes, things of that nature, the number three is a great size smoother. Um, I used to own one of those as well and it was actually my go-to smoother. My preferred smoother was uh, the number three. It's, I believe it's an inch shorter than the number four and it's about a, the blade's about a quarter of an inch narrower. So it's an uh, inch and three quarter blade as opposed to the two inch blade of the number four. Um, are you missing anything, you know, with the, the even smaller smoothers, the number one or the number two? I don't think so. Um, I think the number two, I think a number two sized smoother is probably a great smoother in a wooden coffin sized, uh, a wooden coffin smoother, because that plane is going to fit in your hand really nice. When you get into coffin smoothers with blades much wider than two inches and bodies much longer uh, than about seven or eight inches, um, they start to kind of get tough to hold in your hand. Um, so the smaller wooden smoothers, I think, are that way because they were a little bit easier to hold being smaller. Um, whereas with the metal bench planes, I think you can get away with using a slightly larger body and blade because you have a handle uh, to grab and you're not grabbing the body of the plane. So so no, I don't really think you're missing anything um, with the smaller smoothers, um, you know, other than they're fun to use for smaller projects. Um, you know, I, I had a small smoother. It was about, a, I think it was a one and five eighth inch wide iron uh, with a body that was about six and a half inches long. It was a cute little thing, fit in one hand like a block plane. Uh, and in fact, it was about the size of a block plane. And, uh, and it was a really nice little smoother to use on small stuff or in a really squirrely situation where I needed to, you know, plane just one small area that my larger planes just didn't seem to get to. But that was a fairly rare occurrence. I really tended to use the plane more for smaller, smaller stuff, 
um, and for you know holding it in one hand to chamfer corners and things like that, like you might do with a block plane. For most of my smoothing work, I went with my general purpose, you know, two and a quarter inch wide um, blade coffin smoother that was about uh, about eight inches long. So I don't think you're missing a whole lot in the small smoothing planes. And in fact, you can very easily use your block plane uh, as a small smoothing plane uh, just by, you know, well, I mean, you can use it as is, um, or if the bevel angle is a little bit too low, you can always put a secondary micro bevel on it and uh, and still use it as a uh, a small smoothing plane. So try that out and see if you think you're missing anything. So that's all of our questions for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So for today's main topic, I'm going to do a little throwback. Um, I'm actually going to replay uh, an old Patron Extra show, a Patron Extra audio podcast that I did from June 2017. So I know a lot of you probably haven't heard this discussion. Um, if you're not a patron, you wouldn't have had access to this show. Uh, but I thought it was a good discussion on uh, non-traditional projects. So, you know, things that aren't furniture and that aren't small boxes and, you know, that, that aren't in the uh, woodworking magazines or uh, or published online all that often. So these are just little things that uh, that you can try just to expand your woodworking horizons um, and, and just something fun to try. Uh, you know, when you're when you're short on time, or you just want a different kind of project. So I hope you enjoy this little throwback to uh, the June 2017 Patron Extra show on non-traditional projects. Today on the Patron Extra show, I want to talk about some non-traditional. I guess you could call it non-traditional woodworking projects. So if you if you listen to my most recent episode of the the main podcast. Um, or read my blog at all recently, you may have uh, noticed some things, you know, talking about um, motivation and, and what motivates you to get back in the shop and different projects and things like that. And one of the things that I uh, I may have mentioned briefly in the podcast, I don't even remember actually, but um, was some, you know, trying to, to work on some non-traditional type projects, you know, trying something different. Um, you know, a lot of us, when we get into woodworking, we start with, you know, things like, um, you know, what, whether it would be cutting boards or, or just small projects or boxes, or um, we get into furniture or chair making, things like that. Uh, and that's great. But, you know, we get to a point where we either have enough boxes or enough furniture, or, you know, we've given enough away, or we, you know, we can't sell uh, the furniture or the boxes that we're making but we still want to stay involved and we still want to do woodworking. So, you know, you don't want to start building more furniture when you already have enough as it is, or maybe too much. So, you know, what do you do? What do you turn to? Um, and some ideas that I had, you know, were to, to try some more non-traditional things, some different types of projects that maybe uh, aren't so common, you know, when you start to look at videos and, um, and books on woodworking, you know, most of them are talking about things like, like boxes and, um, you know, maybe toys and uh, furniture for the most part. You know, that's what we see when we look at woodworking magazines and when we look at woodworking books primarily is furniture, furniture and boxes. So what are some non-traditional type projects that 
uh, we can we can look into to you know continue learning different aspects of the craft and and uh, still you know get out in the shop make something different so that we're not making yet another piece of furniture that we're not sure where exactly we're going to put it. So the first one that comes to mind to me is spoon carving, um, and you know this is a traditional craft so to speak, especially in uh, you know the Scandinavian countries of, of Europe, but. Uh, and it is something that is starting to gain a lot of popularity. But, you know, just maybe maybe 10 years ago, you you really wouldn't have heard much about it at all. It was it was uh, wasn't something that was very popular, even though it's becoming more popular today. And spoon carving is awesome. You know, it's a it's a way that you can knock out a project real fast. Um, they're useful. Wooden spoons are, are extremely useful. You can carve them pretty quickly. Um, you know, you can sell them at craft shows or farmer's markets if you're into that kind of thing. Um, and it's just something different, you know, that allows you to use a different skill set, uh, some fairly inexpensive and a very small toolkit. Um, and, you know, you can really knock out some things and be really creative with it. You know, I've seen some real whimsical, cool looking spoons that are that are real neat um, and you can get real creative with spoon carving. So, um, you know, that's a cool idea for for a somewhat non-traditional type of woodworking project. Uh, another one that I had always wanted to try for years and years was uh, cane or bamboo fly rods or, or fishing rods. Um, you know, years ago when you wanted to learn fly fishing, bamboo fly bamboo fishing rods were the only only thing available. Um, you know, so that's what you used, and there were factory-made bamboo fishing rods. And there were also artisan-made bamboo fishing rods or, or craftsman-made bamboo fishing rods. Um, and it's a real skill. You know, I've seen videos on people who build them and I've used them. And, um, you know, I've always wanted to try my hand at building a bamboo fly rod myself. Um, and it's just not something I've done so far to date. But, um, you know, it's another one of those projects where we can use a lot of the tools and the skills that we already have to try something a little bit non-traditional or a little bit different than what you see in mainstream woodworking. Um, the problem I find with bamboo fly rod building is that it is reliant on uh, several jigs, some of which can be quite expensive if you're going to buy them, like uh, planing forms, steel planing forms. Now you can make wooden planing forms as well, as, and if you're only going to try and make a couple of uh, couple of bamboo rods, then that might be the way to go. Um, but you know most professional and, and serious hobbyist um, fly rod builders are using steel forms. So, and they can be kind of pricey, but, um, but again, you know, it's just some other, you know, it's just another cool non-traditional or non-mainstream type of project uh, you know, that we can think about doing in our shops. Um, another one that has interested me lately are tobacco pipes. Um, and, you know, I, I get it. Smoking is, is bad and, you know, it's a, it's, it's a taboo subject, but, um, tobacco pipes are pretty cool. You know, you can really get some, some cool designs or even some very traditional classic designs. Um, and it's really just a lot of carving and, you know, making sure, um, that you get things drilled right and straight. And, you know, you can be uh, very creative with how you carve them and, and design them. And they're just a, uh, it's just a neat, neat little project, you know, and again, it's something small that you can sell at craft fairs or, um, you know, you can, if you get really seriously into it, you can sell them for quite a bit of money. I've seen some tobacco pipes that, 
will sell for hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a single, you know, single pipe. So, um, you know, they're, they're pretty neat. And it's, it's something that I like to try my hand at, or, you know, even if you did, um, something whimsical, like, uh, you know, make pipes that are sort of like those from the, uh, the Lord of the Rings movies, the ones that you see, uh, you know, Gandalf and, and the hobbits, um, smoking, um, you know, the, the long stem church warden style, um, style pipes and you know they're they're just pretty neat and you know it's just something different to try you know again it's it's getting into sort of a carving type skill so it's it's a a neat little uh small project that uh you know gets you away from that main the mainstream furniture and box building uh baskets is another one i've always wanted to try try making Uh, and these are pretty cool because this gets into green woodworking just like spoon carving does where you can go out into the woods and you can harvest a, a hickory tree or an ash or a white oak tree. Um, and you can split the pieces of that tree into thin staves, um, you know, for your baskets and, uh, and, and weave baskets. And it's, it's a really neat traditional skill that not a lot of people are doing these days. Um, and it's just another, another way to expand our woodworking horizon cooperage or, or making, making buckets or, or barrels, things like that. Um, coopering is just, it's another really neat skill. And again, there's some specialized tools that traditional coopers would have used. You can still find some of these tools on eBay, um, and old, uh, old tool dealers, especially in England, but there's not a lot of people still doing coopering. And, uh, it's a, it's a, one of those dying arts, but it's one of the, the skills that I really love to watch when I go to a place like Colonial Williamsburg and I can watch the Coopers work. Um, you know, they work by eye and they, they do all of this work without really measuring or, or checking angles. You know, everything is just done by eye and it's such a, an amazing skill to watch them, you know, uh, stave up a, a barrel or a bucket from these, these cedar boards or cedar splits that they split out of a log um, and planed up. And it's just really neat to watch. And, uh, you know, it's something that I've always wanted to try doing. Um, you know, again, one of those non-traditional type of projects, uh, gun stocks. There's another one, you know, there are some folks that, uh, are doing that today. They're making custom gun stocks. Um, one of my, one of the things I had always wanted to do was, was do a, a custom flintlock rifle, like, uh, you know, colonial style flintlock rifle. And, uh, I wanted to make the gun stock for that. You know, again, it's one of those projects that's on my bucket list, but I just never got around to, but it's again, what I would consider more of a non-traditional or non-mainstream type of project that, uh, that we can try, you know, tests our skills, uh, in a little bit of another way, you know, there's no straight lines for the most part on a gun stock. It's a lot of curves. It's a lot of sculpting. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's some, there's a, a lot of skill involved in bedding all of the metal components into the stock so that they fit perfectly into the stock with no rattling or, and no play. Uh, once all the, the barrel and the lock and, and the trigger mechanisms and everything are inset into the stock itself, uh, you know, the, the, the better the fit is between all of those components, uh, the better that rifle is going to be. So, um, you know, a lot of skill involved in that. And, uh, you know, it's just another way that we can expand our woodworking horizons, uh, window sash. This, that's another one that I've seen. Again, we don't see it much anymore because windows today are all factory made, uh, double pane glass, but 
window sash is actually something that can be quite useful because if you can learn to make a window sash, you can very easily transfer that skill into making something like a divided light door for a cabinet. Uh, if you look at a lot of furniture pieces from uh, older furniture pieces, you know, ones that might have glass doors, whether it's a corner cabinet or, or a large hutch of, of sorts with glass doors, those doors are glazed very similarly to how window sashes used to be made. So, you know, it's a, a skill that is directly transferable to our woodworking and our cabinet making, learning to make window sashes. And it, it's something, again, that we can do with, for the most part, with the tools that we already have, you don't really need too many specialized tools to make a window sash. You can go out and get sash planes and sash rabbit planes, but for the most part, you can make sash, make window sash with the planes that we already have and use on an everyday basis. So uh, just, you know, one more skill or one more project to add to our, uh, our skill set. And along those lines, similar lines, doors. Uh, again, we don't see too many people making entry doors or, or room doors anymore because they're all factory made and there are large timbers and they can be a little bit challenging to work with because of the size and weight of the project. But, you know, it's a good frame and panel type of project. And there are some, uh, you know, some skills involved with making through mortises and, you know, making a good solid, strong door takes some skill, takes some practice and some patience. And, uh, you know, it's another way that we can expand our woodworking horizons. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you for joining me and for allowing me to do this. I'm extremely grateful for all the support you've all provided. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions, because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you'll find them on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt050, and there you'll find any links that I refer to in today's show and links to follow me on all my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon and get your questions answered in the monthly Q&A video, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thank you again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody. <laughs>